Hello and welcome to episode two of the Wilder podcast. I'm Chloe and sit next to me is Tom. Hello, hello. So uh, this is episode two of our foundation episodes, very much focusing on climate change and the science behind one of the many reasons why we've decided to go along with the Wilder podcast and also the Grange project. Another focus of this episode is to get to know you, Chloe, a little bit better, and a bit more about your background, what's driven you to do this, and work alongside your husband in order to try and release something of interest to listeners and put ourselves out there. However, if people already know about Chloe's background, or maybe you already just know her personally, whatever, if you want to jump through to the into now with Mark Linus, then the timestamps will be in the show notes. So you can just go down, find the timestamp, and then move straight to the superb interview with Mark. Back to you, Chloe. And I've got I've written down a few questions. I think I'm going to help explore you as an individual. Are you ready for them? I'm ready. Awesome. So nice and easy one to get you started. What do you think it would be important for the listeners to know about you? Um, so perhaps let's start with my professional identity. So I'm qualified as a clinical psychologist and I specialize in a type of therapy called systemic psychotherapy. Essentially, the kind of philosophy of that approach is that we try and understand people's behavior in relation to their context. And that could be all different sorts of contexts. So in terms of their family context, their community context, the context of sort of broader society. And within it, it's got some ideas around how we communicate, how do we understand and then kind of influence and change systems. So I guess for me, it's got quite a lot of connections with climate change and some of the challenges inherent within that. What I love about that is it's uh, it's great for our relationship because then if I do something that frustrates you, you then can contextualize it this time <laughs> as to what, and then I can, you know, then you understand why I did it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I guess outside of work, obviously I'm, I'm a mum of, of three children and yeah, Ellen is asleep on my lap right now. And when I'm not working or looking after children, which is a kind of limited window of life. <laughs> at this moment. Uh, at this moment in time. Um, I love to walk and to just really be in nature. And essentially, if I can have a good friend and a piece of cake alongside that, then I'm a happy woman. Perfect. Obviously, there's more to you than that, but we're not going to probably delve too deeply into it. So let's move on to the next question, which is, if you had to distill down the reasons for doing this podcast about rewilding and climate change and sustainability and the Grange Project, what would be the single factor that kind of made you take this leap? Well, I think it's hard to distill it down to a single factor, but I think probably what's relevant to that is I would say I'm naturally quite an avoidant person and also quite optimistic by nature. So actually, in some ways, it was quite hard to engage with anything around kind of climate. And I guess that brought me on to rewilding because my kind of general position was, well, first of all, someone else is going to find a solution that, you know, I don't need to worry about this. I'm better off focusing on with my work with the NHS. And, and I was kind of I guess assuming that technology would appear or maybe things weren't as bad as everyone was talking about. I kind of just hadn't really engaged with it. And then I think as part of my clinical work, really, I became more and more aware that young people's distress was occurring within this context. And, you know, I started working with a kind of family system. So trying to do family therapy. Then I started thinking a bit about what school environment and our, I guess our cultural context and the things that we say are important within our kind of British culture, how that might influence young people's experience. And then I started thinking, actually, what is the value really of me addressing kind of a young person's distress in a therapeutic context in a one-to-one setting? I really started thinking about what is it like to do to try and influence and, and change the context. And Tom is a very logical person. And you were saying to me really, well, actually is the context of climate change not the most significant in terms of how it's going to impact on issues that you really care about, including kind of social justice, inequality, and actually, what we're starting to see is young people presenting as more and more distressed about climate change and associated issues. There's a great cartoon you actually sent me this morning. There's a picture of a river. There were people drowning in the river and people are throwing um, 
life aid, you know, floating devices to them that says therapy or whatever on it, and they're obviously they're downstream. And then actually, if you see, if you look upstream, you see this bridge, and the bridge is broken in half, and people are walking over the bridge and falling down the river. So what we're doing is addressing the problem, but not the cause of it. So, and, and again, I think that was one of the big conversations we had, wasn't it? Yeah, so with that in mind, thinking about how do we increase emotional well-being at a societal level, which is one of the things I'm really interested in, we start to think about where we could influence some of these issues. And that's when we started thinking about the Grange Project, rewilding, and here we are. Yeah, here we are. <laughs> Let's move on to specifically why this episode we put as, as episode two in this interview, and why is it so important to you? Well, as in, with my clinical psychology training, I'm essentially trained as a scientist practitioner. So I'm used to kind of critiquing evidence and I guess going beyond what might be kind of media headlines because I'm really aware of some of the limitations of, I guess, evidence that's used in those headlines. And I really was delighted when Mark agreed to come on the podcast because essentially he's someone that really understands science and then works to make it accessible to people. And my hope from this episode really is that people be left with a, a kind of a foundation or a sense of the current context and the foundational principles behind where we are now in relation to climate change science. Great. Well, we're just about to jump into the interview now. It is important, I think, reflecting upon the interview that we probably did the thing we were trying to avoid, which is we use some of those key phrases that people understand within climate change naturally because you've been immersed in it. And we really don't want that to be the case for our episodes. We want to make sure we have to assume really low knowledge, which is where I'm approaching this. Um, and I think it's worth probably defining a few terms that we use during that interview to make sure everyone can follow us. We discuss average degree rises in global warming and specifically in comparison to pre-industrial levels. But what does that actually mean? So when we talk about pre-industrial levels, essentially we're looking at about 200 years ago. And that was at the point where humans start emitting greenhouse gases at the levels where it starts to impact on the climate. And I guess what we know, we, people talk about, don't they, fluctuations in temperature being part of our kind of climate pattern. But we just be really clear, there's complete consensus now that the rise in temperature we're seeing is unprecedented. And over the past 10,000 years, it's always been within about a degree. So the fact we're now seeing rises above that, it's really clear that this is related to human activity. Yeah, it's a bit awkward because we, as the kind of British Empire, are pretty much responsible for the start of the Industrial Revolution. So yeah, it's very, very relevant to us and sitting here in, in the UK. Yeah, exactly that. And I guess when we talk about some of the impacts that might be expected within these kind of different degree rises... Just to be clear that we don't, we're not certain about these impacts. These predictions are based on highly complex climate models that I don't really understand and <laughs> not many people do, but they are based on a lot of very good science, which is never certain. No, but it's great to have the science consensus again, which we talk about in the episode. Yeah. Right. Next term that gets thrown around a lot, COP or Conference of the Parties. What does that mean? Yeah. Sounds fun, man. Why won't you? Yeah, sign me up. Uh, yeah, essentially, this for people that aren't aware, this this happened on an annual basis. It's attended by a kind of vast range of stakeholders that are involved internationally with the development of climate policy. So they're countries, NGOs, corporate sector. They all come together and they try and have a conversation which helps to kind of shape global climate policy. And from that, there are particular targets set by countries around how they're going to respond. And so in keeping with that, theme around COP, uh, we refer to the Paris Agreement. Uh, can you elaborate? Yeah. So yeah, that came out of a COP in 2015 in unsurprisingly Paris. And 
that was a really, I guess, probably the, one of the most significant moments in the fight against climate change when there was a global agreement to limit warming to 1.5. And each country had to come up with their own plan around how they were going to do that. And that included both mitigation and adaptation, as well as also including assistance to developing countries as part of that. And I guess what was significant about the Paris Agreement is it's also all about transparency. So countries setting their targets and then evidencing how they're meeting them. I mean, there's an episode just on that itself, I think. So very much looking forward to that and COPs generally. Yeah, because there's a lot of debates in the sector about how effective COPs actually are, which actually both our guests, I think, have touched on at times. So now I'm really excited to introduce today's guest with you. We've got Mark Linus with us, who is an internationally renowned author, activist and climate advisor. And he's here to introduce us to the fun, some of the foundational principles of climate science. Hello, Tom. Hello, Chloe. Wonderful to be with you. Um, nice to see you. I can see you on the screen. Um, although we're about, what, 40 miles apart? I'm in Hay-on-Wye and you're somewhere further down the Wye Valley, as I understand it. Yeah, nestled between kind of Monmouth and Abergavenny, a very, very beautiful place of the world. Very fortunate to be here. It's important to mention, I think, that, Mark, we've been very keen to get you on for this specific episode. And I reached out to you originally and, and you were very polite, came back, said very keen, but you're very busy, couldn't do it just yet. But I I w was persistent and you were and kind of gave you, gave you more context as to why you wanted to do it. And I, I've got to say that yeah, you really did kind of make the time to come and give us this information. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Persistence pays, Tom. It's just that I've got a book to write. So, <laughs> and I actually just had to go to my publisher and ask for a time extension, like a sort of naughty student who's missed their essay deadline. There, she gave me an extra three months. This is Bloomsbury. But um, I'm writing a book on nuclear war. I thought I'd take something more cheery than climate change and uh, <laughs> see how that went. It's actually fascinating. So do I want to ask when is it going to be out? <laughs> um, well, originally I was meant to deliver in April. I've got a little bit longer, uh, but that's just to deliver the manuscript. And then mm -hmm. you've got, well, probably best part of a year really before the book appears on the shelves, assuming the manuscript I deliver is in half, <laughs> halfway acceptable. If not, then it's going to take even longer, but uh, it should be okay. In keeping with tradition for the podcast, we ask our guests to introduce themselves that they may not have come across you in the past. So would you mind introducing yourself, giving why you know what you find yourself in the position that you do in, in the books you've authored? So yes, hello. I'm, my name's Mark Linus. I'm kind of primarily an, uh, a writer and mostly focusing on environmental topics. I've written several books on climate change. The best known one was called Six Degrees, uh, which came out in 2007, I think I wrote an update in 2021 because people kept asking me whether things were worse or better. And I thought they needed a book length response to answer that question. And so that's the book that's called Our Final Warning, Six Degrees of Climate Emergency, which is the latest big one. Before that, I did a book called Seeds of Science, um, which was about GMOs, genetically modified crops, foods, and my whole experience on both sides of that issue over the years. But it has sort of broader lessons really for how we understand and look at science, scientific consensus, and how society can make decisions about complicated things. So I'm very, very much involved. And that sort of segues on to one of my other jobs, which is I work with the Alliance for Science, which was launched initially at Cornell University in 2012, I think, with funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation mostly focusing on biotechnology in, in Africa and other parts of the global south where genetically improved seeds could really help subsistence farmers have more sustainable and more productive harvests and uh, you would be more climate resilient and stuff like that. So 
fighting the kind of cause of science in different contexts. So we've also published work on misinformation on COVID vaccines and, and more latterly climate change as well. I've always had a chip on my shoulder that I'm not a real scientist, even though I do a lot of science writing. So I was actually pleased to be the lead author of a paper requantifying the consensus on climate change. You might remember the original paper, of, I think it was like in 2013, which said that there was like 97% of climate science agreed on the reality of human-caused global warming. And, I, and that was, you know, 10 years old by the, by the time I wanted to re-look at the literature. So we did a, a sample of, I think it was like 80,000 papers which had been published in the intervening period and found that the consensus was probably closer to, well, well over 99%, sort of like 99.4%, I think was our final figure. So that was something that was really, really fun to work on. So I do do some actual original publications of peer-reviewed papers as well with the Alliance for Science. And more recently, I've co-founded RePlanet, which is a pro-science environmental campaigning advocacy group. So we're pro-nuclear, we're pro-GM, we're pro-vegan, pro-rewilding, which segues on to some other work I've done with Rewilding Britain. I've co-authored a couple of their reports, helped found the Y Valley Rewilding Network. So rewilding is something I'm really enthusiastic about. I think it's probably one of the few positive things that people across the environmental movement are involved in. And it also, and you'll know this, has a broader appeal. You know, you've got people across the political spectrum. It's not like a lot of climate stuff is, which is very sort of left-wing and very sort of hummusy and musically crunching. Um, rewilding somehow just has a broader appeal, I think, because it's something almost deeper down in the human soul. The human psyche is, you know, is satisfied by the need for wilderness and the fact that we can rewild not just our landscapes, but also our lives. So I'll stop there. And that's, I think, enough about me. I'm feeling tired just listening to that. I mean, that is an impressive background and you do some uh, amazing stuff. Uh, you don't need me to tell you that. Um, let's move on to the main effort for this episode, which is just bringing people up to a baseline understanding about where we are currently with climate change and the climate emergency and then some of the and, and some of the impacts of where we currently are and then moving on to what ifs two degrees three degrees four degrees just for people to understand and then we can finally finish with mitigation strategies things that nationally people can do internationally and then individually people can do if that sounds good to you it does sound good to me. Well, we're very close now to crossing the 1.5 degree threshold, which was agreed in the Paris Agreement. Um, when was that? 2015, maybe? Um, I forget. There's been so many of these COPs. But um, it, that was essentially an agreement that passing 1.5 would bring serious impacts both on global ecosystems and on human societies. The original target was two degrees, and that was actually ramped down at Paris, which was a uh, uh, you know, a step, uh, an important move in the right direction. But of course, in some ways, it's a moot point because the world isn't going to be able to hold to 1.5. We're probably going to pass that at least on a monthly, we'll, we'll pack, we've probably passed it on a daily basis already, but monthly and then the annual average will come prob but certainly by the end of this decade, I would imagine. So there isn't any chance at all that we'll keep to the 1.5 degree target. What does that mean? Well, it means coral reefs are seriously threatened with extinction. The models showed it was like 95 or 96, only 7% of coral would be wiped out before we get to two degrees even. So that's the most threatened ecosystem, I think. But there's also concerns about uh, about rainforests, about heat waves, which of course is something that we're seeing playing out in the real world. There's extreme temperatures now being seen across the Northern Hemisphere in summer times, almost every summer. You can see that new records are set and unlivable temperatures now in parts, even fairly close by. You were talking about Europe. I mean, parts of the Mediterranean now, are, you almost can't function in Greece, southern Italy, parts of Spain, North Africa in a hot summer now. And of course, that has big impacts on the hydrological cycle, on wildfires, which are, you know, really serious impact and threaten loss of property and loss of life and so on and so forth. So 
this is something which I think we're seeing playing out in the real world now, and people are increasingly aware of it. You know, I'm quite old now, I'm 50. And when I started on this journey into the future of, of the planet's climate, it was back in 2000, actually, so a long time ago. And I had to make the case then that climate change was real. And I had to travel to Alaska, I had to travel to Peru, and look at the melting glaciers, I had to travel to China and look at drought and dust storms. And to make the case that climate change was even happening now. And I don't think anyone doubts that now. It's uh, it's it's just obvious to all of us. And it's obvious from reading the newspapers. It's obvious from our daily experience. So that case doesn't have to be made. The question now is whether we can make the cuts to greenhouse gas emissions that are needed to stay even within the two degrees target. And at the moment, that also looks unlikely. Thanks, Mark. And for those that are perhaps kind of quite new to this field, what would we, what would be a succinct way of describing the kind of what has been responsible for this increase in temperatures? You mentioned their greenhouse gas emissions, but if you were going to describe that. Um, primarily, it's the rising carbon dioxide levels, which are currently at some, what is it, roughly 420 parts per million, rounding out, out a bit. It started off at about 350. So that's where we were at pre-industrial in terms of the uh, atmospheric chemistry. So we've already raised CO2 by more than a third and we'll probably double CO2 this century, um, even with fairly aggressive mitigation. So CO2 is probably the biggest driver. There's also methane, there's also nitrous oxides, there's uh, other stuff going on as well. What the main drivers are, obviously fossil fuel combustion, so primarily coal in power stations, uh, oil and transport, and also Agriculture. There's a lot of nitrous oxides that come from fertilizers, uh, methane that comes from livestock, primarily ruminants, so sheep and cattle. A lot of carbon that comes from soils when soils are plowed. So food and agriculture are as much as, I mean, it's, it's debated how much it is, but it's as much as, I'd say, 20% of the problem. Uh, so you can't solve it just by addressing energy and, you know, all going renewable and, and whatnot. And there's a lot more to this problem, which is why it's such a difficult one to address because there's so many different dimensions to it. So, you know, people might say, well, I'm vegan, but, you know, I'm still going on a private jet. So that's all right. You know, it's just can't, <laughs> I don't think live a fully, it's just not possible to live a fully sustainable lifestyle and function in modern society. So that tells you something, which is that the transition has to be a root and branch one across all of industrialized modern society across the whole world. And we also have to do that in the context of allowing for the eradication of poverty and the, and the development of countries which are still well below our living standards in terms of their GDP and poverty and so on. Most sub-Saharan African countries probably have about, I don't know, a 20th, a 30th, a 50th even of our electricity consumption per year. So the corollary of that is they need to increase the, <laughs> the electricity production by 10, 20, 30, 40 times. That has to be done without burning shared loads of coal and oil and gas if we're to keep the climate livable but we can't turn around to say to them that they can't have the lifestyles that we've got in the west they won't accept that and nor should they so we're going to have to see a dramatic move to clean energies including well most especially in, in parts of the world that don't currently have enough access to modern energy services at all it's a complex issue and I think that's really helpful to hold on to because I think it's being able to tolerate complexity that's part of the way we're going to move forward in addressing some of these challenges. And so talking there about the, I guess, the trajectory we're on at present and, well, the weather warming is now. And I guess there are hopes and intentions within us as a global population to try and mitigate and address that. But should we not be successful in some of those endeavours, obviously there's a risk of higher warming. And you talked about there's a point where, you know, things are just not going to be livable. And, you know, what would be the effects should we not strive to reduce the impacts of global warming? 
when I was writing six degrees, that seems eminently possible that we'd be on a five, six degree warming trajectory by the end of the century, which is why I described in some detail what the impact of that would be. It now seems much less likely. Humans have control over this. We haven't passed tipping points which have driven global warming out of our control, which you may hear from some people. That's not true. It's still totally up to us, and the main determinants of future warming this century are our own emissions. So it's really humans' collective choice over how much coal, oil, and gas to burn, and and some you know what kinds of food systems and stuff we have, which will determine where we are by 2050, where we are by the latter part of the century. So if you look at where we're going to end up, if you take seriously all the various commitments that have been made, so all the net zero commitments, we've got a net zero target for, what is it, 2050, India's 2070, I think, or 2080, China's 2060 or something around there. But if all of these countries, and that's now the vast majority of the, certainly of the major economies of the world, are serious about their net zero commitments and get to net zero by some point after 2050, we come in at, um, I don't know, about just over two degrees, probably. I mean, there's always uncertainties about this, but we're not, we're certainly not heading into the five, six degree climate catastrophe uh, outcomes. So we could look at that with re a renewed determination to make sure that these governments not only meet their targets, but that we accelerate the transition and get there even earlier, because that might bring us under two degrees and that would have a huge impact on staving off the worst that climate change will otherwise bring, thanks to all of the work that's been done by, you know, to the environmental movement, climate campaigners, everyone, Extinction Rebellion, everyone who's been out there, either on the streets or in all the different ways, campaigning, mobilizing, forcing governments to take this issue seriously and forcing the net zero targets, not just onto the top of agenda, but actually into law and into a sort of legal binding situation in, in lots of different countries, which is the only thing really that's going to make governments actually deliver on, on these targets. So if you were, I don't know, someone like me sitting doing you know I work in a non-environmental field I work in health which obviously there are links but you know and you and I wasn't the kind of that aware about some of these kind of issues and and actually said oh well the worst effects of two degrees for me as, as a British citizen what would be the things that I might be concerned about or I might notice if we got when we know it looks like we're in this trajectory to around two degrees I'm always reluctant to say what's going to happen in just in Britain because of course What's happening in Greece right now, uh, you know, with half of roads burning down, you know, it's connected. We're in a global news cycle and we're a, a globalized civilization. So what happens in other countries does directly affect us, whether it's through trade, food, refugees, who knows what. So it's not as if what happens in Britain is going to be the only thing that affects us. But having said that, um, what we might see directly is higher temperatures, uh, particularly in summer months, much less cold in the winter. So that might benefit older people, perhaps, but we won't be seeing the snow. We won't be seeing the frost and ice that we've that we were certainly used to as you know when I was a child. And that's already been something that uh, that we've seen. You know, we get we already get much much less snow than than used to be the case. Mm -hmm. and, and any old people can tell you tell you all of the stories that about the winters they used to have. And summers are getting hotter and probably drier as well. I mean, it varies. We're having a reasonably damp. Was it July? We had a very dry May and June, and I was quite worried that we were going to see a repeat of last year's drought, because that's certainly what's on the cards, really, is it's serious drying and um, very hot temperatures during the summer months. Nothing, of course, compared to Southern Europe, but certainly off the charts in terms of what uh, we've been used to in, in the United Kingdom. And that will change change our vegetation. I mean, it'll change the kind of life, uh, wildlife that can tolerate living in, in this sort of climate envelope as well. So these changes will be slow, but when they get when you see the extremes, they will be really pretty dramatic. 
you know, we've already seen, uh, I think it was only a year or two ago, the, the a new high temperature record. Um, and that's something which we can expect more and more of in, in the years to come. You mentioned earlier about the concept of tipping points. For me, that was a really significant moment when I understood about this concept and, and what that meant. I wonder if you could give a kind of brief description of what, what that means, people that might not be familiar with that idea. Yeah, I mean, I would see that with just saying that people shouldn't use this, the tipping points concept as a as a reason to be fatalistic. You do hear this, oh, we've crossed the tipping points, you know, Greenland's already going to collapse and the permafrost is already going to melt and so there's nothing we can do and so we should sort of more or less give up. That said, and tipping points are fairly uncertain. There was a, actually a paper that was published just yesterday, I think, about what's called the Atlantic Meridional Oceanic Circulation, AMOC. So it used to be called the Gulf Stream, but that's only a little yeah. bit of it. You know, the whole way that the North Atlantic circulates equatorial warm water into Northwest Europe and keeps us at a much warmer temperature than you'd expect for our uh, latitude. And if that shuts down, that's a potential tipping point. Um, and it's probably done that in the past. Certainly, if you look at uh, ice cores and other sort of paleo evidence, it does suggest that this current isn't always there. So that's one tipping point. Others like the possible collapse of the Amazon rainforest, a lot of methane coming from melting permafrost, particularly in the in the subarctic regions, um, methane being an important greenhouse gas. So there's other tipping points as well. And the point being that once you've crossed one, you can't necessarily go back to the pre-existing state. So if that current in the ocean was to shut down, we couldn't just flip a switch and restart it. That would have stopped forever, at least on human timescales. So Mark, you mentioned that if governments hit their targets that they have pre kind of predefined, you know, it's looking, I wouldn't say looking good because that's it's all relative, I suppose. Probably what I'm asking is how best we hold governments globally accountable. Well, I mean, the only thing that matters to the climate is the concentration of greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere. And the only thing that matters to the concentration of greenhouse gases is our emissions. And our emissions keep on going up. They flatlined and they dropped a bit during COVID, but they bounced straight back up as soon as the global economy rebounded. So while I think we're looking hopefully at a plateau now in coal consumption and a gradual drop and hope and, and, and fairly soon after oil and maybe gas a decade or two after that, there isn't any sign of that yet in terms of the actual climate forcing. So the, the gas is in there atmosphere which are retaining more of the sun's heat and which are heating the planet up and that's ultimately the only thing that our success or failure can be judged by is what's in the atmosphere what's the ultimate impact on the on the planet's temperature so all of the good news i've given you is all about projections of policies that we hope will be unfolding and you know there's technology transitions which are looking positive in terms of I don't know, everything from electric cars to small nuclear reactors but these things haven't had any measurable impact on the planet's climate yet. So this is all about looking at the future. Okay, and if we move on to the kind of mitigation phase, what can people do? I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on ways in which an individual can look to mitigate, ways in which a community can look to mitigate and galvanize support and make change and then corporate and, and then governmental. Yeah, I mean, I think we've moved beyond the individualistic approach to this issue. Like, the only thing that matters really is the collective effort of entire countries and the entire globe. And those are things which can only be carried out through the actions of, of governments and, and at a policy level. That means that our most important activity on a climate front is our activity as citizens in terms of what we hold our governments accountable for. 
and that means driving the clean energy transition ensuring i mean there's a big debate at the moment of course in the uk even about whether the net zero target will slip and you can see a lot of talk now in the tory party in particular they're trying to put pressure on um keir starmer the hopefully incoming labor prime minister to roll back on well or, or they're trying to sort of tar him with the just stop oil type brush and to try and bounce him into having a less aggressive climate policy. And there's some indication that it doesn't poll well. I mean, the recent by-election, it was the uh, ultra-low emission zone in, in, in London, which supposedly lost Labour that seat to the Tories. Uh, I mean, it was the Tory seat to start with, but they could have won it. I think we have to really focus on the politics of this. It's way more important than you know your personal choices. It's trying to ensure that um, that we keep sort of social consensus, a political consensus on the need to move rapidly forward on keeping hold of and even intensifying our targets. In particular, I mentioned things like getting to zero emissions from our electricity sector. That's supposed to happen by 2030. That looks like it's going to slip. 2035, I think it is, for stopping the sale of internal combustion engine cars and vans and stuff. Again, the Tories are going to let that slip. They might even slip on the net zero target itself for 2050. So we could try and move these targets forward, but they're probably as ambitious as they can get given the time it takes for the, these transitions to play out in reality with technology and just the, the simple inertia of how many cars there are on the roads which currently have petrol and diesel engines, including my own, by the way. Everyone has to get rid of them and have to buy what are currently super expensive electric cars. You know, These things don't just happen overnight, whatever, whatever we might wish, but the signal from government that there will that car companies will not be able to sell petrol and diesel cars after a certain date is critically important in driving that technology transition. I guess thinking about the importance then of being a responsible citizen and being informed about, you know, which policies we should be supporting and advocating for and I guess how how to go about doing that as a kind of politically engaged citizen. What kind of advice or thoughts would you want to share with our listeners about that? I mean, this isn't easy. I mean, I've sacrificed a lot of personal and reputational political capital in supporting nuclear power, for example. And, you know, that puts me at odds with a lot of the, how would I say, more, more traditional end of the environmental movement. But, you know, that's my sacrifice for the climate is to cash in my personal <laughs> reputational chips in something which is unpopular because I believe it's important for our mitigation effort. Um, and you can see, like, in Germany, they just closed down nuclear power stations and they've had to increase the amount of coal mining and destroy entire villages and forests and stuff so they can carry on digging lignite out of the ground. Um, and that's sort of, well, not supported by the Green Party, but facilitated by them closing nuclear. So, you know, we've got to challenge ourselves. It's one thing, you know, a lot of a lot of kind of green lefties look at the political right and say, point at them and say, it's all their fault. But the reality is we've all got to kind of take a critical look at ourselves and not just assume that we've got the right... Uh, the right idea already on, on these kinds of issues. And it, it does have to be kind of cross-party um, and, and cross-political. We can't make climate change stop by persuading everyone to be to be left-wing. That ain't going to happen. Um, yeah. And I'm not even sure it's desirable. So <laughs> it's, we have to have right-wing solutions to climate change as well. But ultimately, mm -hmm. we want to keep a habitable planet. We want to keep the Earth's climate from passing critical boundaries. Um, and we want to protect the future habitability of the planet for all of human societies and all of our children and grandchildren. And I think that's something that should be, you know, have appeal to everybody, whatever their politics happens to be. Yeah, it's, it's taking the emotion, I think, out of decision making, just looking at the, at the facts and doing what needs to be done. It looks like we're, we're getting pretty much towards the end of this chat. I'd like what I quickly mention now that not that you've asked for this, Mark, but the, your, your books and links will be in the show notes for everything we've discussed today. Out of interest, where would you direct people if they wanted to find out more, 
notwithstanding your work, where would you send them to to find out more about the discussion we've just had? I try and get people in, interested in advocacy and campaigning. And for that, I'd um, suggest people visit replanet.ngo. There's you know, a new pro-science environmental movement, which is growing around the world. Got chapters in Africa, in, in Australia, right across Europe. At Ukraine, we've just opened a chapter as well um, to support the uh, effort there against the Russian, Russian invasion. And there's just so much to do. And I also would advocate that people get in, more interested in, in, and involved in rewilding efforts. If you've got any land or even if you can just help out in a different way, support rewilding Britain, support your local rewilding network. For me, that's one of the really, and I know that's something that's, you know, floats your boats as well. Tick. But it's a, Yeah, tick, exactly. But it, it, it's just, it's positive. You know, you can go out there, you can see, you know, I was just uh, up in the Brecon Beacons in one of the nature reserves, which doesn't have the degree of overgrazing that's sadly present in pretty much all of our national parks here in the United Kingdom. Uh-huh. And you can see, you know, young trees, there's all these cliffs which are festooned with vegetation. And, you know, that's what the ecology should look like. So we tolerate the ecological moonscapes of uh well not just the brecon beacons where which just happens to be close to me and, and to you guys but the lake district um the scottish highlands all of our fragile upland areas which are just destroyed by overgrazing primarily by sheep and that's a, a really positive thing to focus on because you can see from year to year to year i can see all the little saplings coming up every single year as the as all of the trees try to reseed we've got you know rowans and oaks and ash and Lots of little saplings on the common all, all around where, where I am. And it just gives you gives you a buzz. It gives you something something that you don't get from, from anything else, just from kind of political type campaigning. It's just seeing, seeing how rapidly and how amazingly ecology can bounce back once you let it. Yeah, I think that's a really hopeful story because sometimes it feels like some of the climate messaging is around doing less, driving less, eating less meat. And actually there's something around if we can do something positive by doing more and nurturing the environment and that can have a beneficial impact on the climate, it feels like a kind of win for everybody. Yes, exactly. And I'm actually working on a report with Rewilding Britain at the moment, trying to look at, just look at some of the numbers. I actually find I'm a bit of a geek and I do like putting numbers on things. It just, but it does help you get a scale of things, you know, get the measure of things if you like. And actually we could probably rewild 20 to 30% of, of the United Kingdom with almost no trade-off in terms of food production because the amount of calories you actually get from upland sheep are very trivial whereas the amount of carbon that could be sequestered the amount of flooding the amount of biodiversity that could be promoted in those landscapes is absolutely enormous so we have to find where places so there's always going to be trade-offs and you know that farmers aren't too keen on this and i understand why because it will impact farming and farming will change fairly dramatically but that doesn't have to be a negative shift it's one which could hopefully empower rural communities and, and bring jobs into areas for all sorts of new diverse things but you know change is, is ever present and i think we just have to welcome that and see the, the the positive directions that that things can go in in the future and not harp on like not be too doomist about it and i say that as somebody who spent 20 odd years on climate change i've been through doomy phases by the way i've been really depressed at various times but you know it really bothers me when people say i'm not having kids because i think the future is going to be awful yeah i don't you know, I just don't think that's evidence-based even. You know, yeah. the future certainly would have been bad if you'd been having children in, I don't know, 1895 and they were going to all die in the trenches in the First World War. Mm-hmm. There's no, we're not facing that situation, uh, hopefully. And it's certainly not, it's not written in stone because of the environmental challenges we face. A good friend of mine had a, that exact conversation with me. You know, what do you think about bringing children into the world in the, in, in the current climate? And I just said, look, 
if you are climate aware enough to to be concerned and actually have that discussion with me, you all the families that I, it would be great to have more children because they're going to be brought up in a way that to respect nature, to understand the challenges of facing us. And we need more, more you know, young people coming through with that process and that awareness to be able to continue to drive the change going forward. So they're the people that should be having you know, lots of babies, in my opinion. But uh... I mean, I guess that's true if you want to rationalize it. But for me, it's it's more than that. It's it's an it's an emotional issue. I mean, children are your sort of love investment in the future. Uh-huh. Uh, I can't imagine not having had children. It was something I always wanted to do. I was always kind of I always loved babies, and I was always going to want to have kids. But <laughs> like, and I can totally understand that people just aren't into that, and that's fine. But don't look at the future and imagine that it's so gloomy and bleak that you shouldn't be bringing children to this world. I think if you want to have kids, please <laughs> go ahead because the future the future can be incredible, and hopefully your children will be part of making it so. It's a really hopeful message, I think, and I, and I've you know I've really loved I guess the theme of this conversation, which is about. It's within our control, you know, that we can influence this, whether it's, as you say, a, as an engaged citizen or um, kind of holding government to account on the on the targets it's set themselves. And and I think that that's what feels hopeful about this whole the whole um, process is there is things are always changing and we have the ability to influence that change. Absolutely. Continue talking and discussing and, and sharing knowledge and awareness of it. Tom, do you reckon should we ask our that question around the one thing to take away, or do you think we've covered that implicitly? I think we've covered it. So, so Mark, we have we've we've got two questions that we put together. We thought it'd be really good to ask each guest at the end of an interview. However, I, I just get the thing, feeling that throughout the interview, the guest is going to answer. But I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to ask it now, just because why not? Let's test it out on you, Mark. What is the one thing you'd hope our listeners would take away from this conversation? Okay, the one message I really want to get through is that we're not doomed, and that uh, this it's still hundred percent in our power that we not just have a habitable planet at the end of this century, but that we have a planet which is in even better shape than the one we find today. That's great to hear. As parents of three young kids, that's great to hear. So thanks for that. And <laughs> question two is, what is one practical thing our listeners could do to that will have an impact on addressing the climate crisis? I mean, if you want to look at uh, personal lifestyle stuff, Diet is really important, and and there's kind of a win-win on diet, really, which is that it depends how carnivorous you are. But um, <laughs> and I don't, you know, it would be great to be able to advocate 100% veganism. But totalitarian veganism, I've tried, and I've not found it um, very nice. Actually, I don't mm-hmm. feel great. Um, food is just it's really difficult. It's not very rewarding. I feel like I lack protein. So I think it's this kind of fle- very low meat flexitarianism is, I think, what I would personally advocate. But without getting too obsessive about it and without being too religious about like oh oh there's a tiny bit of you know milk solids in this chocolate i can't even eat it that kind of stuff that's not going to help the planet at all and but you know diet's really critical what you put into your body is really crucial for your health and for the health of the planet so that's probably the one thing actually that um, that people can look at really closely well i think that worked well, they, yeah great <laughs> <laughs> So uh, that's it. I think that's taken the uh, first foundation episode of the Wilder podcast to its natural conclusion. All that's left to say is thank you very much, Mark, for giving us your time. It's been thank really you, a great experience. You're very welcome. I look, I look forward to catching up again in person. Thank you, Mark. That was, that was great. Uh, what a foundational episode. I've got to say, from a man that wrote the book about final warning, six degrees of warming, only a few years ago, he's a pretty damn optimistic bloke, isn't he? Yeah, I get, and I wonder whether that reflects some of the change in kind of climate policy over the last few years or his developing understanding. But I left more hopeful than I had anticipated at the end of that interview. Yeah, I'm probably a natural pessimist when it comes to this stuff. And it's it's very easy saying, 
oh, it's okay. Now just we've got to hold government accountable. But um, it's not quite as easy as that. And I think from my perspective, my reflection on that, and I think that although it is government impact that's important, it, I think it's the individual that will drive that. And, you know, and that comes from a lot of things, including talking about it, making small changes, talking to your friend saying, hey, I've tried vegan and actually it's not as bad as it sounds. And and actually then your friend then might try it. And then that kind of spreading uh, effect and suddenly everyone starts, you taught me this, Chloe, but when someone starts to identify as a thing, whatever it might be, as a runner, if you run a mile, you call yourself a runner, you're more likely to run two miles, more likely to run four miles, five miles, more likely to run a marathon. I think that equally has its part to play. And that's a really great point there, Tom. And I guess in relation to my identity as someone that's kind of climate concerned. I was struck when Mark was talking about the kind of two degrees rise being the best case and and his kind of thoughts around what that actually means. And I guess we're really talking about quite a significant and, and wide ranging effects of that. And, you know, particularly for developing countries and some of those really unique ecosystems such as, as coral reefs. But even within the UK, we're going to see some really significant changes. I know Mark talked about the kind of idea of there being hotter summers, but what that really means is a lot more heat related deaths in the summer. We talked about kind of extreme rainfall and what we see there is that kind of increase of the risk of flooding. And we know that has really significant kind of economic and social impacts. And with the kind of changing weather patterns, we don't really know what effects that will have on the crops and the food that we're trying to grow within this country, the impact that could have on kind of pests and diseases. So it's also going to affect food security. And really what we also don't know is how quickly some of the species that we have within this country will adapt to this kind of changing climates, sea level rise, and there is a a consensus that there will be sea level rise when we hit two degrees and the impact that could then have on coastal communities. And I feel like I was left with this question for me as he was talking about, is 1.5 kind of still alive, that idea? And how, you know, do we need to really strive to make it so still or are we just kind of giving up on that target? And I felt kind of, I, I feel kind of sad about that as a, as a construct. I mean, it's generally accepted now by chief scientists in the UN that 1.5 is not a thing. So it is talking about, you know, it's looking at two or two plus and really trying to get to understand that. What I love about what you just described is that is a beautiful precy to episode three, where we talk about security challenges of, of climate change and national security kept challenges. So that's a great one. Well done for the precursor there. Yes. Uh, but, you know, talking about you know, sadness there, and I think that we shouldn't rest on our laurels, even if it is best case two or two plus degrees, you know, actually every single 0.001 increases, it means equals deaths and increased pain and strife for many people around the world. And I'm, you know, again, I don't think we're going to solve the problem with this podcast, but I think it's important to not lose sight of that. And we should continue to fight to make that as low a degree increase as we possibly can. I think with climate, it always feels like it's quite a lot of, in systemic, we call it both ands. There's kind of a, both a sadness about what we've already lost and the impacts that are going to be that are going to happen but also we've got to have a kind of hopefulness and an optimism that we are still able to move forward and address some of these challenges and I think for Mark it felt like there was a real strength of optimism around some of the government policy and how it's going to hold us to within this two degrees of, of warming and I, I guess that left me thinking about well how do you hold a government to account because sometimes there's a risk that it can feel a bit like them and us like this government is this external thing to us when actually fundamentally in a democratic society you have significant influence on the government process, whether that's at a simple level of voting, but also in terms of how you understand policies and follow government's progress towards them and, and then how you hold them to account, whether that's speaking to your local MP, whether that's engaging petitions, or I guess at a more extreme end around kind of protesting and activism, or at an end of just joining, joining environmental groups and NGOs like like Replanet, which Mark mentioned, 
we have an opportunity there to be able to make our voice heard because ultimately the government is supposed to represent our interests. And if we're interested in this stuff, government needs to hear about it. Yeah, and, and if you really, on, on the lowest level, I think what you can do is like and subscribe to a podcast that may, <laughs> that may be talking about this and maybe share it with your friends. Just, just saying, as an option. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess that's the final takeaway point for me, really, is that although, you know, there is something about the, the power of government action and, and, and I guess within that, the kind of corporate sector, our individual action does make a difference, whether it's through our purchasing habits that signals to the market, whether it's through that identity point that you were talking about, Tom, or whether it's through joining movements like the Grange Project, hopefully can start to influence the community. The communities can start to influence the culture and our culture can start to influence society and government listens to society. Mic drop. <laughs> I love it, Chloe. That was awesome. Sorry. Uh, I'm excited that. Uh, God, I'd vote for you. Great. Well, as this is the first interview we've done and the first ever interview that Chloe has conducted for a podcast, we hope you found it interesting and you'll follow us on to episode three of the podcast. And let's hope it'll only get better from here. That idea was great. Yeah.